Welcome to the Leadership Playbook. My name is Emily Hawkins. How I used to introduce myself is, I have 15 years in supply chain, creating and leading teams, streamlining processes, managing millions of dollars. Except that's not what I do anymore. I'm a career and life coach. And I wanna take you on the journey of how to lead yourself, how to take your career to the next level, whatever that may be. I'm gonna give you tangible advice on exactly how to do what you want to do. Lead and love your life. All right, today I wanna introduce you to someone that, okay, I'm actually gonna take you back to when I was 26 years old. I was newly divorced and I decided what a great time to go to graduate school. And I was so unsure of myself. And I'm one of those people I have, I don't, I've never been diagnosed ADD, but I think I might be a little bit. So in this course, in this class, I made sure to sit on the front row. I was front row girl asking questions, being a part of the class and somebody that I'm going to introduce you today, he doesn't even know this, breathed possibility into me at at the age of 26. And it was something that I didn't act on for 10 years. So Dr. Kofi Smith, who you're going to meet today, walked up to me in that class. And if you ever get the chance to meet this man, he makes you feel like you're the only person on earth when you talk to him, said to me, oh, do you own your own company? And I remember 26-year-old unsure self laughing and saying, what? No, I do not. And it stuck with me, though. So you actually planted a seed in me in 2008 that became a reality in 2017. So thank you so much for even seeing me before I saw myself. And that is why I want everyone in the world to meet Dr. Kofi Smith. He is an amazing human being, and I'm so excited to have you here today. Tell us more, though, because I'm just telling you my version of you, (laughs) but so much has happened since then. Uh, Well, first, um, let me just say thank you so much for having me on and for sharing this story, because I did not know that story, and uh, my eyes are tearing up just thinking about it. So I'm very moved um, that that, um, I could even remotely have a little tiny part to do in your amazing success. Um, I've watched you on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook uh, over these past several years, and I'm just so amazed, which I I was always amazed by you. Um, But, oh my gosh, the the resource that you have become for so many lives – um, and finally you and I get together because I told you, Hey, I need you to coach me. I need some, I need your advice. I need your guidance. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited about this opportunity as far as, uh, you know, me, you know, I always tell people, I'm just a little, uh, simple country boy from Alabama that God just breathed his favor on. And, uh, he allowed me to, Move through my career and get into get into a position where ultimately um, it's all about helping people. And so when when people ask me, you know, how did you get, how how were you able to become president and CEO 
of this organization managing hundreds of millions of dollars at the age of 35. Um, at the time, um, that was my age, which was the youngest person to ever take the role in this organization since its inception back in 1979. And I tell people all the time that it's, it's, there's nothing fancy about me. Um, there's nothing that's uh, extraordinary about me at all. It's just that I believe that God poured his favor out on me simply because everyone that he had placed into my orbit, I just tried to bless. I just tried to protect and I tried to take care of. Now, do I have a master's degree uh, in global business? Uh, yes. Do I have a doctorate degree in business? Yes. Um, has, uh, you know, God blessed me with a, a couple, you know, skills and talents, of course, like everyone else. But there are people when I stepped into stepped into this position that were um, way more qualified uh, quite honestly, probably way more deserving than myself. So when I explain to people my differentiator, do I, you know, do I study hard? Do I work hard? Do I do all that stuff? Absolutely, right? Is education important to me? Absolutely. Am I a strategist? Yes. Am I good with people and processes and systems? Yes. But the reason why I believe God put me in this seat is because I've always been one to just want to take care of people and figuring out how do I do that? And that means those that he's placed up under my leadership. It means my shareholders. It means my clients. It means my customers. It means my business partners, whoever he puts into my orbit. I'm trying to figure out how to take care of them without worrying about Kofi Smith. And I believe that's the reason why. He's done what he has done for me, because if I'm not worried about taking care of myself, then my father can do that. If I'm only worried about taking care of everybody else, then I allow him to do what he's um, way better at doing than myself. And that's taking care of me. So uh, that being said, I think that's the most important thing that I like people to understand about Kofi is that there's nothing special about Kofi. Uh, but I have been blessed tremendously to be where I am. And I try to use that blessing to benefit uh, the lives of others. Oh, and it's so true. I'm sitting over here, like trying not to interrupt you. Cause I'm like, yes, you are a hundred percent, all of those things because every time, and I watched you when we were in school together, which by the way, was like 11 years ago or 12 years ago, which makes me <laughs> want to throw up a little bit. I'm not that old. We started when we were 12, right? That's right. And, and yeah. I didn't have this gray at that time. <laughs> I have gray too, but I cover it up with blonde. So anyway, uh, <laughs> but I remember watching you in class and the way the program we were a part of was, was there were about 50 of us in a class together, 50, 55, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. And we all were lockstep together, which was amazing because I felt like so many friendships, bond, you know, formed and bonded actually two of our classmates uh, technically four of our classmates four, got yeah. married to each other, which is amazing. Um, and it's just so many things happened and we ended up traveling because we do have a degree in global business. We went to Beijing, we went to um, Brazil, we went to Vietnam. Those trips were absolutely phenomenal. But I remember watching you with other people and the way you just intensely look at someone, not like in a scary ser serial killer <laughs> way, <laughs> in like a, 
I want to know all about you. You matter to me right this second. I want to hear from you. And I just absolutely love that about you. And Kofi, in his company, what he's not telling you is he posts regularly, not really about himself, but about all the people that work with him and for him and what he does to bring light. Cause you're definitely a light bearer. That's what I feel when I see you as you're a light bearer, you're somebody who brings light to other people's lives. And right now there's so much dark. And the reason we're actually speaking today is everything I've just told you about Kofi. Uh, it's almost like he's Buddha in a way, like <laughs> gentle, caring. I've, I've never seen you get upset. And in graduate school with stress and all that, I never saw you freak. You never cracked. You never, none of that. And a lot of us did. Um, but when things started happening from a police brutality perspective, and I, I don't even want to say started happening. That's not even a fair statement because that's happened for like hundreds of years. Um, you know, when I think we were all put in close quarters uh, in terms of all this quarantine, and then we started seeing these um, atrocities, you know, uh, it really started, and, and you mentioned this in your article, and that, that's actually why we're talking, is about the woman, the white woman in the park that called the police. Um, and if you watch that video, which I have, she's completely in the wrong and takes it a completely different direction. And then I wasn't aware until I read your article that that happened the exact same day that George Floyd was murdered. And you wrote this powerful article on LinkedIn, and I'm going to link it up in the show notes because I feel like everyone should read this, especially white people. Um, because we have so much privilege that we're not even aware of. And my eyes were opened from your article, but in many other ways as well. And so I wanted to talk to you today because there was so much passion in that. And coming from someone who always speaks with love and understanding, it was like, this man needs a voice. This man needs to have others hear what he has to say, because if you don't agree with, you know, any of this, I, I want to start with, here's, here's Kofi. I, I have some labels for you. Uh, the reason I say that is because I find it hard to believe that the listener is not one of these labels. So if you're listening to this, I want you to, you know, put a finger up if, if you're one of these things. So you're a child, meaning you have parents, right? So you, you're a child, you're a spouse, you know, so I'm, I'm putting my fingers up here. Uh, you're a former college athlete. I'm not going to put a finger up for that. Uh, you are a parent. You are a CEO. You are a doctor. You are an advocate. You are a teacher. You are a friend. So I'm pretty sure now we're on even playing field, right? We all feel like, oh my gosh, I know him. I am him in certain ways. But there are so many things that I can't relate to as a white person, right? I was born with white privilege. It's a silent, um, deadly in a way, uh, killer in certain areas. And so I really wanted to learn more from you today. And um, like I said, I'm going to put your article in the show notes and 
tell us more about this article. And I, I don't even want to say what precipitated it. It's so obvious. Um, but just share more about that. <clears throat> so, uh, so thank you again uh, for giving me an opportunity to amplify uh, my voice. And, and um, I'm, I will try not to get emotional and, and, and it's gonna be very hard with you because <laughs> you are tugging on my heartstrings. Um, and and for, our, for our people, and I'm gonna use our two ways. One, our people meaning black people, but then the, the real our people that we should be focusing on, which is all of our people for humanity's sake right we have to have um <clears throat> we have to have more uh whites um our white brothers and sisters doing what you're doing and um i was so fortunate so fortunate so blessed that kevin riley um the chief editor at the ajc uh as a white man felt the same exact way that you did he said i need to amplify his voice he has to be heard. And what a lot of people don't understand is that um, for years and decades and centuries, Blacks, even though we started um, Black Lives Matter, even though we were marching back in the 60s under Dr. Martin Luther King, even though the Black Panther started to come against uh, uh, police brutality in the KKK in 1966, even though Blacks have tried to come up um, over these decades, it is really the voice of the white man and the white woman that amplifies our voice because our voices haven't been heard, unfortunately. And that's why we're sitting here at 2020 still having this conversation, right? And it, it baffles my mind when, when I, I sit with companies as I've been doing since my article and, and I'm, I'm having these conversations and walking people through uh, this time. And, and I know it's necessary, uh, obviously, but it's very sad that in 2020, we're having to explain why my black life matters, right? It, it's very sad and it's very hurtful. That being, that being said, uh, the more people that we have like you that is willing to put her name, her privilege, her power, her social equity at risk for the uplifting of another human being, the better we're going to be. And, and, and we will, we will make more progress. I truly believe this is a time like no other where whites are truly, genuinely leaning in with their hearts. They are leaning in towards African-Americans. And one of my jobs is to make sure um, my role in this conversation is to make sure blacks lean in towards whites. And what I mean by that, and I'm, and, and, and I'm, in, I'm certainly going to get your article, but this is important for me to kind of let everybody know. Um, God, I was, I was speaking to a, a, a big corporation here in Atlanta that asked me to come and talk about my article and just talk about the social unrest and, um, you know, different things from my article. And, and this organization had all of their marketing and sales um, force on it. Well, the night before, 
or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the morning of, God woke me up. This is a true story at 2 a.m. And um, he he told me, he told me what my role was supposed to be in this conversation, right? In this movement. Because uh, it, it honestly was unclear. You know, I wrote my article and I was like, okay, well, you know, I've done it. And I'll talk about the reason why I've done it in a second. But God, hey, I wrote it. I'm done, right? And, and that certainly hasn't been the case. It hasn't been done. People have contacted me and wanted me to talk about the article. Well, in this instance, God woke me up at 2 a.m. And he said, you have a specific role in this because of who I am. Some of the things that you listed, Emily, about just, you know, how he kind of created me, uh, what my DNA is. He, he said, you have a specific role. And so many people are going to play different roles, which is fine. <clears throat> but your role in this uh, winning of the game is to be a marriage counselor. Now, uh, when he said that, I didn't really understand, um, I, you know, it's 2 a.m., right? So I'm, I'm in the bed, but I'm up and I'm trying to figure all these thoughts out. He said to me, what's the most complicated relationship you've ever been in? And I was like, marriage, right? I have relationships with friends, relationships with my children, relationships with my parents, right? Relationships with colleagues, but the most challenging relationship is my marriage, right? For a host of reasons, you bring two people together that come into this union with their own family of origin. They come into it with um, their own learning history. They come into it with their own sets of beliefs. And now these two humans collide and are supposed to integrate themselves into one life, but yet they have a lot of different beliefs, right? So what God helped me understand is that exactly your most challenging relationship is your marriage. So now I want you to think about what you wrote in your article, because I didn't write my article on this premise. He said, I want you to think about what you wrote in your article and components of your article. What were you saying? You were being a marriage counselor, right? Whites and blacks have been married for 600 years. People talk about the 400 years because they go back to slavery, but you really got to go back 600 years where racism actually began, right? Like in 1415, you got to go all the way back to Europeans and Africa. But the point is, we have been married for 600 years, whites and blacks. So if you take these two spouses, what has happened is John Gottman's four horsemen have shown up. And those four horsemen, contentment, resentment, you know, um, stonewalling, all of that has shown up. And we are on the break of a divorce. It's imminent. And during this moment in time, what our two races, these two spouses need is marital counseling. So when, when he put this inside of me, is I haven't worked, so Emily, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that I haven't fully flushed this out, right? Because he just gave it to me last week and I'm trying to flush it out. Um, but parts of that discussion that he gave me is that I'm bringing together these two spouses one spouse, we're going to say our white spouse, right, has um, for years and years and years and years been doing these things against the black spouse, right? Uh, you know, be it police brutality, be it just racism, be it beating, be it in slavery, be it um, belittling, be it calling us by different names, blah, 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 things that actually happen in marriage, right? Well, now we have this white spouse that has agreed to come to counseling. And they are leaning in. Well, you have this black spouse that um, understandably 
has been abused in this marriage, but now has a time to speak. And what we can't allow <laughs> is for the black spouse to just throw up on the white spouse, right? And cause the white spouse to, oh, I'm going to lean away. What we have to understand both parties is that, hey, the black spouse has a lot to say. It has a lot. They have a lot of hurt. They have a lot of resentment. They have a lot of contentment that they got to work through. They got to get all of this out of their system because they haven't been able to. And what I need my white spouse to understand is that don't lean away. Continue to lean into that. And from the white spouse standpoint, when I talked about the Million White March, when I talked about um, coming to us and, and apologizing and, and letting us know that you're ashamed of what has happened, that is validating what we are feeling, as opposed to what some are doing, right? Uh, which is a majority of whites, very majority, because uh, I mean, a minority of whites are saying, right, counseling, yeah, but, or they shouldn't feel that way. Or yeah, I did that. Or hey, it wasn't me that did, right? All of this stuff, which invalidates the feeling of that African American in counseling. So I say all that to say that I'm, I'm really figuring out and and framing this whole marriage counseling concept up that God has given me because I really believe it has true merit in this conversation as we move along as a unit that is married, right? Black and whites, so we've been married a long time, but we're on the brink of a divorce. And if we divorce, it's gonna be a very nasty divorce. And that's the one thing I'm most worried about. We're at a tipping point in this nation and either we're gonna tip to the light or we're gonna tip to the dark side. And that's gonna be a very nasty divorce. Um, let me quickly talk about the article, just really quickly. Um, so, and I've explained this to people and, and for all of your listeners, um, on May 25th, when uh, Amy Cooper called the police on Christian Cooper, and then later that day, we witnessed um, George Floyd, uh, his murder. I have yet to watch the videos, okay? Um, but it was enough for me just seeing the, the news feeds come across my phone. I was impacted, but I wasn't affected. So on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was impacted, but I wasn't affected. And this is what I mean. I was impacted, but it was, you know, here we go again. You know, it's, I, I'm used to it, unfortunately. I'm used to seeing that. I mean, Eric Gardner got choked out just six years earlier in 2014, July 17th. So I'm used to it, right? And literally my head went to, well, um, another white man uh, has, has killed uh, an unarmed black man and he most likely will get acquitted. And here we go again, right? Now, right before that, remember on May 13th, uh, Brianna Taylor got shot and killed in her uh, or in her home waking up out of her sleep she got shot at least eight times right before that on may 5th we have seen the uh, video that came out in reference to ahmaud aubrey who was hunted down and then killed so when you get me to the 25th right it's here we go again right i'm impacted but i wasn't affected all right you get me to may 29th all right which is that friday 
I was affected. Okay. Um, I left work. I went home and I did a two mile jog. And from that two mile jog, once I got to my house, everything hit me. It was like a ton of breaks just hit me. And I fell into the most darkest place that I've ever been in. As it pertains to my position as an African-American man, very successful, well-educated, doing all the right things, I no longer understood where I set or fit in this nation as an African-American man. And um, it was a dark place for me, not a sinister dark place. It was a dark place where I was completely alone. And I'm trying to get out of this dark room, but I keep bumping into these walls, which were my feelings that I couldn't reconcile. I couldn't make any sense of it. So on Saturday, I just started writing um, because that's the only way I knew to get my feelings out of me so I could make some sense of them on paper. And I started writing on Saturday the 30th and I just kept writing and um, I couldn't do anything, Emily, from from that Friday to the, the Friday, which was June 5th, when I hit publish on that LinkedIn article. I couldn't I, I, I couldn't think straight because I didn't understand my feelings. I couldn't engage with my family. I couldn't engage at work. I didn't work out at all. Um, uh, I didn't run at all for that entire week. Um, I, so in my article, when I say I couldn't, I couldn't breathe, right? I couldn't breathe. Um, as, uh, as so many blacks have said, and that means so many different things to so many blacks, but I literally, I just couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't live. I couldn't focus. So as I continued to write, I got my feelings out on paper. Well, that was the first part of, um, rehabilitation to me was getting it out of me and then on paper. So now I could make sense of what I was feeling. Then I organized it and I needed to get it off of me, meaning I needed to get this burden that was weighing down on me to speak out. So that's why I published it because I had gotten it out of me. I got it all out of me on paper. Now I can say, oh, I know why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. I know why, you know, I'm in this dark place. Well, I'm sorry, not why I was in a dark place. That's important for me to make note of because I didn't figure out how I got into that dark place until two weeks after. And I'm going to explain that to everyone. But at least I understood what I was feeling. So I got it out of me. Now I had to get it off of me. Publishing the article was my way of getting it off of me, meaning it's no longer here between me and myself and God privately. Now I'm sending it out to quote unquote, whatever world may read it or pick it up. I'll be honest with you. When I hit publish on June the 5th, it was an exhaling moment for me. And I felt at that moment, okay, now I can engage. I can engage back into life. Um, what happened with the article, I never expected because LinkedIn tagged it as a 12 minute article, right? A 12 minute read. So I'm like, okay, you know what? No one's going to read this at all. I mean, no one has 12 minutes of their life to, <laughs> to read some article by somebody that they don't even know. Right. Um, so I didn't expect a lot of people to read it. I, I didn't. Um, I was good at just releasing it. Right. So now it's there. If anybody wants to read it and if somebody did read it, I hope that it would shed light. Um, on this issue from a from the perspective of an African-American man who is a president and CEO, this is how he's feeling. 
and if that helps someone, I mean, if it helps a black, if it helps a white, if it helps someone of color, great, right? But ultimately, it's off of me, all right? Um, that night, true story, that night, I had a, um, a, a white woman call me in tears. She was in tears. She was... Um, she was in tears. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I started crying uh, when she was on the phone with me. Um, and this was the night that I published it. I also had a white man uh, reach out to me in tears who had read it. Uh, the next day, um, the AJC um, picked it up and, and noticed it and then reached, uh, reached out to me, which again, uh, which is, which led to the op-ed, um, Um, that was published. But my point is that I didn't expect a lot of, I didn't expect people to read it and people actually read it and people actually shared it um, to the point where I'm on here with you now on this podcast. Uh, It was amazing. And every person, white person that reached out to me, specifically white, I would tell them, you're pushing air back into my lungs. You are giving me my breath back. And the reason why, specifically white, because I realized how I got into the dark place. Monday, which um, that week, Memorial Day weekend, right? Monday was a holiday, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was back in the office. I didn't have any of my white friends reach, reach out to me. Um, to check on me, which is okay, because I understand, right? Everybody's processing their own emotions, okay? So I get it. No one's going to reach out because they don't, you know, they don't know what to say, right? They, um, they're dealing with their own emotions and feelings and trying to process it. So that's okay. No one reached out to me. Um, that's okay. But the thing that added to that, it was more of what the, the salt that added to the wound that got me into this dark place where I felt I was alone was when I reflected back two weeks later after I started doing all these um, uh, different presentations and talks, I realized what drove me into the dark place is that not only did whites that were my close friends not reach out to check on me, which again, I understand why they didn't and I'm not blaming them for not. Um, It was the fact that I was working and dealing with whites Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, and no one acknowledged it, right? No one said, hey, I just want to, I, we're talking, we're doing business, but I just want to pause and, and, and let you know X, right? And it could be as simple as, how are you doing, right? It could have been as simple as, um, I don't like what's happening, right? just something very simple just to acknowledge that I'm an African-American man who just witnessed on the same day a white female calling the cops on a black man who was innocent and told him the script of what she was going to tell the cops to get him to get the cops there. That man, Christian Cooper life could have changed that day had he not had recorded her. Emmett Till, at 14, white lady, lies on him. He's a little boy. He didn't have a cell phone to record what actually happened, and he got hung. Same day, George Floyd, same day, loses his life to a white man 
who's supposed to protect and serve. And me as an African-American man meeting with all of these white people through the week, nobody acknowledged what I was going through, meaning they treated it as if it was business as normal. It was business as usual. That's what drove me into that dark place. I finally understood why I was then affected, right? On Friday, I was affected because I had spent four days with people treating me as if it's business as usual. Not that they were intentionally doing it. No one, I, no one was doing it to be malicious. White people are just uncomfortable <laughs> with this with the situation. They don't know what to say. I get it, which is a part of my article on say this, mm-hmm. right? Say this. Um, the blessing. Well, let me speak on this last moment. When 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 African Americans will hear this podcast, they'll be like, "Well, why?" Why were you alone? Why did you feel like you're alone? We're all in this, right? African-Americans, we're all in this. We've all been in this. African-Americans, we've been in this time and time again, right? Eric Gardner, Trayvon Martin, uh, uh, Tamir Rice, uh, Breonna, we've been in this. Rodney King, we've been in this, right? Yes, all of my African-American brothers and sisters are with me in this, but my African-American brothers and sisters can't get me out of it. That's the problem. I'm in this dark place with a group who are with me, but we're all in this dark place and none of us can lead ourselves out of it. It is only my white brothers and sisters who can get me out of this dark place. So when I started receiving these phone calls, it was pushing air back into my lungs. White people emailing and texting me and calling me and saying, I read your article. People literally, Emily, responded to me text message or Facebook post where they copied and pasted what I had said in my article, what to say to me, that's what they were sending me, right? And it was pushing air back into my lungs. The reason why I share that with you on your podcast, and I, and I apologize for being so long-winded on that point, is because all whites hearing me right now, the majority, and I don't speak for all Black people, okay, but the majority of Blacks, we need to hear from you that you recognize and you're validating what we're experiencing. Do not treat it as business as normal and interact with us without acknowledging what we are going through. It doesn't mean you have to sit down and have a 20 minute conversation. It's not that. It's just that when you interact with your black friend for the first time or your black colleague for the first time, after all this stuff is happening, just acknowledge, acknowledge it let us know that you are with us or let us know that you just, you just care. Like you, you can literally say, Hey, I just want to make sure you're okay. I don't know all the things to say, but I want you to know that I'm here and I want to do something. I'm not sure what to do, but I want to do something, but I'm just starting out by saying I care. And I just want to check on you. I want, I I want to make sure that you're okay. Is there anything that you need? That's it, right? It's, that's, that's all we need. That's all we need. Um, so that's really, Emily, how the, the article came to be. Um, and the results of the article have been amazing uh, with the people reaching out to me, but not just me because it's not about Kofi, right? It's not about Kofi. But when people push, when people lean in towards me, it, it puts air back into my lungs. I would um, 
ask that whites that are listening, do that for all of your other black friends and black colleagues. Because what I can tell you, when I say it's not about Kofi, that so many whites who have read my article, they've been doing that to their black friends, right? I mean, story after story of people literally reaching back to high school and contacting someone, a black from their high school, that because of what God put in me to put on this, put into this article, they realized that they had watched things happen in high school. They never, as a white, stepped in. They wanted to, but they didn't. And they literally called and found this black from high school, searched for him, found him and said, I'm sorry. I am sorry. So it's stories like that that made me really emotional um, because I know God is doing something right. He's he's doing something with this article. And I got a very small um, part to play in this, but I'm excited that he's he's allowed me to to be part of the conversation. I can't. I just that was so beautiful and so wonderful to understand all of that. And I love what you said about marriage, because you're right. It's not about this moment, right? It's about what we do with this moment. And just like I would say, you know, using that marriage analogy, I'm a huge fan of analogies. It's not about the wedding day, right? I mean, that's like, fine. I'm sure you remember your wedding day. I remember mine. I had two of them anyway. (laughs) We won't go into that. Um, But that's not what the foundation of my marriage was built on. That was a day in time that we celebrated in front of some people, but it's the low moments, those moments where things get hard to your point where you lean in. And I love what you're saying about how do we do this in a way that honors both, it honors the burden and the struggle and the pain of one without pushing the other one away to your point, you know, the, the abusive spouse finally goes to therapy and they're like, well, I didn't do that. Or that was 10 years ago. You know, Mm -hmm. they, they, they go through that. How do you honor that in a way so that both parties feel heard? Cause to me, that's what this is all about is finally we're hearing from a community of people that, literally this country was built on their back and they're not even asking for, in my opinion, you're not saying I want to be this or that you're asking for civil rights is what we're going to go back to civil rights. Really? That's sad that in 2020 you're asking to be considered just, just, we want to be civil, right? We just want civil rights. What? This is so, it's so heartbreaking to me. And, you know, just seeing all the things that are going on. And and I wanted to bring in the parenting piece because you are not only a parent, you are a parent to three boys and they're varying ages. Um, your oldest son, that story is absolutely amazing. Uh, how is this driven that? Because I, just from my perspective, I will tell you what I did. I started talking to my children about black skin and brown skin. And one of the things that came up, I have several friends that are white women married to black men and a few white men married to black women. So their children are biracial and my children are friends with these children. And 
it just never occurred to them, you know, about why their skin is different. So we had those discussions for the first time. And one thing I mentioned, especially to my son, he has this little friend. I just love her. Her name's Ariel and she's biracial. And I said to him, you know, what's interesting is that let's say you decide to marry Ariel and he's five. So, you know, that's like whatever. <laughs> uh, and he was like, okay, you know, and I said, you know, that like 53-ish years ago, 55 years ago, you couldn't do that. It was against the law and you'd get arrested. And he thought I was telling him a joke. Mm-hmm. He was like, what? And so we put names and faces to all of this because I think it's one thing to say like, and I loved your article about, you know, don't, you know, let's be colorblind. What? No, that is, that's ridiculous. That's not honoring a person for who they fundamentally are. Right. That's right. right. And so that would be like saying, let's have a conversation and forget that I'm a female and you're a male. What? Like, but that's who that's in our DNA. Right. So we can't forget that. Um, And so really putting names and faces to this and giving them hard examples of like, let's say your friend wanted to do this, you know, and, you know, skin tone and what makes skin tone and how that works and how beautiful it is, you know, and how my, my son actually says her skin is so beautiful and brown. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, please just carry this with you forever. Um, so anyway, as a father of three sons that could be any of the men that you mentioned, right? They could be the man in the park and in and, and our backyard was the Amar Aubrey stage, you know, so that was so devastating to me. Um, so what is that like? I mean, I mean, that's how you had to have driven some of this as well. It it did. And, and, you know, I want to make a a quick point because I don't want to miss this. Um, a a really good friend of mine, her name is Monica. She shared something with me that I've started to uh, use, but I always give her credit for it. She said, you know, we need to make sure that whites understand that it's not your fault, but it is your fight. So there's so many whites that come into this conversation and you said it perfectly, right? The marriage spouse. Well, look, that was 10 years ago. Why are you bringing that up? Well, what's synonymous to that is white saying, look, me and my parents, we didn't do X, right? We didn't do it, right? But what we are trying to make whites understand is, yes, but that does not excuse you from the fight just because you didn't do it, right? So, yes, you and your parents, you didn't do it. It's not your fault, but whites, it's your fight, it is your fight for blacks, but for humanity's sake. And, and the reason why I mention that is because, Emily, what you're doing with your children, I pray, I pray that so many other whites will do the same. And what I mean by that is blacks, all the blacks that are listening to me right now, they know exactly what I'm about to say. We as blacks have to have the talk with our children, right? And that talk with our children, to sum it up, we don't have long enough for me to tell you all the little particulars, but the talk with our children is how to survive in this world. No parent should have to sit down and have conversations with their children to say, when you 
get stopped, this is what you must do so you don't get killed. When you go into the store, this is what you must do in order not to be harassed or arrested, right? Trayvon Martin, when you go to the store and you're walking home and you got watermelon juice in one hand and Skittles in the other one, right? You cannot wear a hoodie because a vigilante may come up to you and kill you. That's the conversations that we have with our children. It's the talk. That's what we call it. I pray that white people start having the talk with their children, which is a different type of talk. It's the talk that Emily is having with her kids so that one day blacks stop having to have the talk with our children. The more that whites start having the talk with their children, who will ultimately become your son, will ultimately become a white man with white man privilege, white man power, white man influence. If his incredible, beautiful, wonderful mother plant the seeds inside of him right now while he's five years old, that black lives matter. Black people are not bad. Ultimately, Emily, what I'm trying to do is at the end of this, if people say, okay, Kofi, what are you trying? You're going to do marriage counseling. You're, you wrote your article. What is it that you ultimately want? Do I want police reform? Yes. Do I want better educational system for blacks? Yes. Do I want, you know, uh, equal housing? Yes. Do I want a better judicial system and criminal justice system for blacks? Yes. I want all of that. Right. Um, um, those are things, right? Those are things. And, and yes, I want those things. But what I also want is not to have those things without white seeing blacks differently. So you'll stop seeing us differently. And what I mean by that is that for decades and years, black skin has been criminalized. People see black and they think immediately bad, right? Bad. And it's not because white people necessarily are racist. It's because whites have been socialized to look through a racist lens and see blacks differently. That has got to change. I want blacks seeing me the way Emily listed me off to you all. He's a father. He's a doctor. He's a friend. He's a spouse. He's a person. He's a human being. Doesn't matter the color of my skin. I am a human being, accept me for that, right? Accept me for that. Don't look at me and think I'm a thug. Don't look at me and think that I'm a delinquent. Don't look at me and be scared that I'm gonna rape your wife or your daughter. Don't look at me and think I'm gonna steal your car or break into your house. Don't look at me and think when you're walking towards me as a white woman, you need to switch your purse to the other side because you think I'm gonna steal it, right? I'm a president and CEO. <laughs> I have no reason to steal your purse, okay? <laughs> Just look at me as a human being. Now, that's what I hope to do. I hope to change white people's perception of blacks. Black skin does not equal bad at all. My sons, when this happened, again, this has happened all the time, right? All the time. But in this moment, it changed for me because 
and and no one's heard this itself for you right now, Emily, and and your and your and your guests, because this hasn't come up. But I used to tell my my seven year old um, when he was two, I would drop him off at the early care center, and I say, "Hey, Daddy always comes back. Daddy always comes back." To the point where the teachers would say, "Hey, Daddy always comes back," wow. right? That all shifted. And I started telling my son that, hey, daddy's always going to be with you. Even if I'm in heaven, I'm always with you, okay? And I started telling him that. And I even got a picture. And, and we read it every night. Um, it just got delivered like um, three weeks ago. And it's a picture of a, a, a daddy lion looking down at a, a baby lion. And that's me and his thing. Like we're, we're lions. He calls me, I'm the king lion and he's the baby lion. Um, and his little brother is the cub lion. But in this picture that I ordered, it specifically talks about you are braver than what you think. You're smarter than what you know. And um, daddy will always be with you, even if I'm not right. So I had to start telling my son when all this happened is that um, I changed my tune with him. It's not that daddy will always come back because I can't promise that anymore, right? I don't know if I'm going to get stopped and, um, and, I, and I don't get to come back to him, right? So I changed it and said, every time, hey, little dude, even if daddy goes to heaven, I am with you always. I am your guardian angel. Because I can't imagine getting stopped by a cop or on my jogs, on my run. <clears throat> and um, for whatever reason, you know, I, I, you know, I bump into a segregationist, racist white person and, uh, and I lose my life. And then my son says to mommy, daddy said he would always come back, but he's not coming back. Please, he would always come back. So I had to change that narrative with my son and let him know that, hey, I may not come back. I may not come back, but I'm always going to be with you. And for people who are hearing this and, and don't understand how real this is, um, I went on a board retreat. With I sit on a board, and um, one of the gentlemen on my board, very successful um, white man, he allows us to have his retreat at a very exclusive, high-profile um, location, which I won't say the name of, um, um, but every year we have this retreat up there. Okay. And, um, this year, uh, we had the retreat, no different than we had last year. And, um, we broke, we're, we're out this, we're, we're at this retreat and we're at this outside area and we broke, uh, really quickly, take a break on our board meeting and everybody left. I stayed at this little cabana. Okay. Three white men. Um, walked up to the cabana and um, I was on the phone talking to a friend. Now this was just a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago. And um, they walk up and I immediately uh, changed my conversation on the phone and started talking about business transactions and money, right? Literally. Hey, we're going to, we're going to get, we need it. I just started making it up, right? I started making it up. And my friends on the line, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? 
Um, and I just literally made it start talking about business transactions, money, negotiations. Here's a contract. This is what we're going to do because I needed to let those three white guys know. Cause I could tell by the way they were looking at me that they were questioning why was I there? Right now, mind you, I'm a president and CEO, but I immediately had to do what so many blacks have to do is make white people comfortable. Right. Because if they're not comfortable, something could happen. Right. So I immediately changed my tune on my phone. White guys, they leave. I'm there. The group comes back, which is um, three black men. Right. Including myself. So two black men come back and the rest of the board are white men. We get into this conversation about, you know, what are we going to be doing? You know, social justice, blah, blah, blah. One of the black guys brought up, unbeknownst to me, when he was leaving, okay, white guys had kind of, white gentlemen had kind of walked ahead of him. He was leaving. These same three white guys, these same three white guys walked past him, saw him, saw the other black guy. And I didn't know this happened. And they went to talk to the attendant to question why were they there, right? Who, why, why are these blacks here? Same three white guys who walked up, unbeknownst to me, um, to the cabana where I was and looked at me as if I didn't belong and then I had to change my tune. The reason why I'm sharing that story is for whites to understand. When I go to tears because I may not be able to come back to my son, that's a prime example that just happened three weeks ago where white men are questioning why am I at this exclusive um, 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 you know, exclusive location. Um, why am I somewhere expensive and there are black people here? That's right. Why, why, you know, this is in their mind, in their mind, right. Blacks are, blacks are not allowed here. Right. right. This is so expensive. We, we've made this construct where no black should be in here. And if blacks are, because blacks can afford to be in here, right? Blacks, and, and, and I don't, quite honestly, I don't even know if blacks are allowed. I mean, honestly, if if I was to go there and say, hey, I want a membership here. Mm-hmm. I want to buy a cabin here. I don't know if it's set up where I couldn't. So now for them, not only is it a, a, a question of, um, wait a minute, they're not supposed to be here. So if they are here, they must be here to do X, right? Some right. crime, some whatever, right? Well, what I didn't know is the, the the gentleman who actually has the membership there, very successful Caucasian man, incredible, um, uh, incredible individual. Um, in fact, I, don't, I, I take it, but I don't even know if he's, I don't even know if he's 100% Caucasian. He looks Caucasian, right? Uh, but the point is that he said to us, um, he takes pride in having our retreat there because he is he is able to bring black people there right and have other whites see that he's brought black people there right mm-hmm. um so it, it, and so the point is the only time black people are there <laughs> is when we have our board retreat right that's the only time so I, t- I told you all that to say uh, with my boys, it, it is um, with my with my seven year old. And of course, you know, my one and a half year old, uh, no conversations there. But my 26 year old, it's very frightening for me. It's very frightening for me because uh, he's 26. Um, his mind is processing very differently. It's processing as a 26 year old mind would. 
and um, I cannot protect him. Um, I can I, I cannot protect him when he's away from me. Um, so I worry about him constantly. Uh, he's in Alabama, which heightens my worry for him. Um, so it's, it's a, it, for, for many Blacks, I'm, I'm, I'm not unique in this situation. Uh, we worry about our children and the conversations that we have with our children are very, very different than the conversation that whites have with theirs. But hopefully, the more whites continue to have the talk with their children, we will no longer have to have the talk with ours. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. I can't imagine, like, I'm telling you the conversations I'm having with my children. And you're saying, let me make sure you know I'm always there, even if I'm not physically there. That makes me want to throw up that you have to have that conversation. That's not right. That's, ugh, that's, mm, I hope that people are listening to this and understand that that's, that's not okay. And I am so sorry that your children have to have that conversation. That's not fair. Life isn't fair, right? But there's there's no reason why your amazing sons, one of my favorite posts were friends on Facebook was a few Halloweens ago when you were like, I got to get home to be with my son. And you guys were dressed as... (laughs) Was it, it was Spider-Man, wasn't it? Were you dressed as Spider-Man? Yeah, Spider-Man, yeah. Oh my yeah. God. It was amazing. You were so proud of that. The two of you looked amazing as Spider-Man together. So that's what, that's where my head goes when you tell me that story is I know that little boy, you know, I know that Spider-Man and my son is obsessed with Spider-Man as well. So I totally feel that. Um, but uh, I just, uh, that ju- that just breaks my heart. And that's why conversations like we're having right now have to continue to happen. And it's not easy, right? Like none of this is like, yes, let's talk about race. Yay. No, it's a hard conversation, but I will tell you, and I, you know, this better than most, right? When you lean into the hard stuff, that's where great things happen. When you lean into the uncomfortable, that's where, boundaries are broken people understand for the first time something potentially um i'm a part of a group on facebook it's white women um, against racism and it's really fascinating in there um because they're all races are in there but it's it's really like educating and there's so many articles i've read in there and things that have opened my eyes to I had never thought of things this way. One of the one of the things that I read that really tugged at my heart was a woman who posted a picture of a package outside her house. And it was a black woman. And she said, this package was delivered to me uh, incorrectly. And it should go to my neighbor who's two streets over. Now, what you're saying to yourself is, I have sons and they're teenagers and you just take the package over, but I'm afraid for them to do that because somebody in the neighborhood will see a black teenager with a package that if he stopped does not have his name on it and they will not understand what's going on. And if he does get to that person's house and ring the doorbell and give it to them, somehow that has malintent as well. Because was he trying to case the house to get in it, you know? And it was all these things in my head 
I had never thought about. And I thought that is so sad and so real. It is so real. And it just blows my mind that we feel that that's okay. You know, that, that yet if it was a white teenager, teenage boy, we wouldn't stop them. In fact, we would believe them. And there's some great articles that I've read as well of, of white women uh, that are talking about altercations and things that they had when they were in high school, right? Like drinking and doing really dumb teenagery things, right? And they list out how many times it happened to them and how they got verbal warnings, how they got, oh, you know, you're just silly. Let me just give you a ride home. That would never happen in the black community. And I had never, again, my eyes have been open because I thought, I never thought of it that way before. And I think the more we as a society can find ourselves saying that, I never thought of it that way before. That's where we as whites listen, because it's my job is listening. I'm all about listening. And I want to make sure that every voice feels heard and valued. No one should feel that way. And I just, you know, we were going to talk about racist and the racism in the workplace and all that. I don't even want to go there because I feel like we've just covered so many other things that were so much more relevant, at least to where we are sitting today. Yeah. And I love what you said as well about reaching out to people and just saying, are you okay? Because it's like, I call it T-Rexing, by the way. Uh, so when you think of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? If you don't move, let, let's go into uh, Jurassic Park for a moment. If you don't move, he cannot see you and therefore he will go away. Well, I think that that's what we think as white people. When these atrocities happen, let's T-Rex it. Let's not move. Don't say anything. And it'll just, it'll just go away. But it doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. What that does is make everyone around you feel not valuable, like their lives don't matter. And, you know, one of my favorite things that I read about black lives, you know, people keep saying, well, all lives matter. That's not it at all. To me, I equate it to breast cancer, right? If I went to you, Kofi, and I said, I'm raising money for breast cancer um, because I have some friends that survived breast cancer. And you said, well, what about colon cancer? Or what about, you know, bladder cancer, or all these other cancers? All cancer matters, Emily. Well, now I feel horrible and my cause doesn't feel valuable. And it's not that all cancers don't matter, um, but it, it's a moment in time that we, as especially white people of privilege, need to use the things that God gave us. I don't know about you, but God gave me two ears and one mouth. And it is time for me to use my ears more than I use my mouth. And if I am using my mouth, it's to ask questions that are productive, such as how did that make you feel? Because there's one thing that I, I cannot answer, right? I don't know how you feel. I can tell you how I feel, but understanding how someone else feels, that is something that you cannot Google. You cannot read in an article because to me, that is a very unique perspective for each individual person. So you can hear this podcast today and you can say, oh, I know Kofi now, which is great. And I love that you know my friend, 
but Kofi's not your black neighbor. Kofi's not your black friend. Reach out to those people and ask how they are feeling. This is one man's voice that I hope opens the conversation for you to know that's all anybody cares about. It's just knowing that they matter and that you're there to listen. So I want to finish up with whatever you, what last thoughts, Kofi, anything you want to say? Uh, you know, I would, the, the last thought is um, um, a lot of white people uh, get defensive and in some cases take offense to when we talk about white privilege, okay? Um, and, and I won't take this time to educate uh, necessarily white people on white privileges, but what I, want, what I want to do is make sure that you understand that white privilege is not some construct that blacks have invented in their heads. White privileges are true privileges that were given to whites in the late 1600s, early 1700s to prevent lower class whites from joining with lower class blacks in order to rage war against the white elites. Wow. So there was this guy, Nathaniel Bacon, who said, hey, I'm gonna go join, he was a lower class white, I'm gonna go join with these lower class blacks and then we're gonna come together and we're gonna rage war against these white elites because Nathaniel Bacon, as a lower class white, didn't have what the upper whites had, right? So he thought, hey, ingenious, I'm gonna go get with these other lower class people. I don't care about racism. I just, I, I, don't, I don't care about the black people plight, right? It's not that he was doing it from an altruistic standpoint. It was a great strategy. Let me go get with this other lower class and we rage war. Well, what happened is that uh, the governor, um, Berkeley, said, whoa, 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 we can't have that. So I'm gonna give the lower class whites, Nathaniel Bacon, and these lower class whites privileges that set them above the blacks, okay? And then from there, history just continues. So I'm not gonna give you a history lesson, but my point is privileges are real, all right? Now, here's one thing, if whites have a hard time right, wrapping their head around it, I get it, you know, it's offensive, black, I don't understand why. A lot of whites will say, listen, I grew up poor. I grew up uh, with one parent in the household. I grew up on the bad side of town. I had to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm white and I don't believe that I have privileges. That's what whites will say. Let me help you understand something. And it's what Emily just said. She never thought about it that way, that that African-American lady had to go through all of this processing on whether or not her black son, teenager, would be able to take a package over to a neighbor's house no, different, no differently than a white teenager could, right? Emily said, I never thought about it that way. Emily said, all these white girls were talking about all these different opportunities that they had making dumb decisions in, um, in high school that we all make, but they got off, they got off, they got off, they got off, and there's no way a black person would have been able to do that. I never thought of it that way. That's what Emily said. I want to expound that just a little bit. Emily has never and will never have to think about, not just think about it that way, but she will never have to think about her white son 
ever getting pulled over and possibly losing his life. She will never have to think about her white son taking a package over to a neighbor house and there be anything that happened. Like, like Emily doesn't have to think about it, not think about it in that way, but she doesn't even have to think about it. So all of you white people that out there that don't understand this whole privilege thing and you battle with the privilege, simply spoken, your privilege allows you to not have to think about the things that we have to think about. Forget about privilege where you get hung up on, some whites get hung up on, well, I don't, I'm not getting something that blacks are not getting, right? I'm not able to, I'm not experiencing something that blacks are not experiencing, right? I, I'm, I, I grew up just like the blacks. Uh, I don't have privilege. Your privilege, very simply speaking, is that you don't have to think about, you do not have to worry about the things that we have to think about, worry about, have conversations with our children about simply because of the color of our skin. You are privileged because you don't have that burden. So next time anybody white <laughs> feels as if they are getting all upset about this whole privilege thing, I want you just to simply boil it down to what I just told you. You don't have to think about the same things that I have to think about or some other blacks have to think about. And no matter how successful we are, Emily kind of told you about my success. No matter how successful we are, right? No matter if we make it to the NFL, no matter if we become a doctor, no matter if we become the president of the United States, we're still black. And because of that skin color, we have to deal with things we have to be concerned with things. We are challenged with things. We are have, having to make different decisions and we are having to think about things that you do not simply because of the color of our skin. That's privilege that you have that we do not. Oh, so good. Oh, I swear you took us to church today. It was good stuff. Um, well, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and really just having this amazing conversation. I feel like we went to therapy, you and me today, and it was very fun. Um, I want to continue this conversation, though, and I, I want to make sure that everyone can follow you. I'm going to link up in the show notes your article for anyone to read, also your LinkedIn profile, because this guy's a teacher. Every day he's teaching, he's uplifting, he's sharing. And it's, you really need to have Kofi in your LinkedIn feed. It just adds some, some fun and levity and, and happiness to your day. Um, and I just, I really, I honor this so much. And I, I would love to, if you're open to this, to having another conversation around this marriage. And, uh, you know, I, I think it would be great in like six months, maybe a year, because this conversation needs to continue. And I want to deepen this marriage, right? I want to strengthen it and make sure that it's not that wedding day. It's the, the true partnership and relationship. Um, my father told me when I got married, he said, you know, when you find that person, when you're on the same playing field, there's nothing that can stop you. And I feel like what you said earlier is so true 
if we do this together. There's nothing that can stop us when you combined white and black and brown and all sorts of people together and you say, I honor you, I hear you, let's go solve some stuff, you know? Let's go create some amazing stuff together. There's no stopping us. So I cannot wait to continue this conversation at another time. Um, I think you're an amazing human being and I'm so happy to know you. Uh, but thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much, my friend. I love you. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for amplifying our voices. Thank you. Thank you. Did you love what you heard today and you want more? Sign up for my weekly email in the show notes. It's packed with tips and tricks to lead and love your life. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram by typing in Emily Hawkins, the number four, the letter U. I'll see you here next week.